Hylia. Hi, Karen. How was your weekend? <laughs> what did you watch? What did you not watch? Um, oh my gosh, I watched so many things. Okay. Including the... I'm too, like, buzzed for this. Um, including Jenny Hans. You better put that in the box. <laughs> <laughs> Jenny Hans, all the boys I've loved before. So have you read the book? No. Okay, I haven't either. Okay. So that's, like, a... I think a good contact center mm-hmm. for like really only referring book. to the movie. I don't know why I'm doing like side saddle on the bed. <laughs> Karen, how many times have you seen this? I've seen the movie four times in the last And let's two just days. be clear, it came out two days ago <laughs> on Friday. Today is a Sunday. Uh-huh. Yep. So you have watched it almost four times more than I have. Yeah, I yeah. watched it one and a half times. Okay, let's start with your first impressions. Can we just say, first of all, John Corbett never thought Aiden from Sex and City would be a dad to three Korean girls. That's a great. Honestly, first impressions, thank God for a young Asian woman with boobs. Oh, God. Like, wow. what the heck? Okay, so I'm really glad you said this because I literally am like, she has boobs. Like, in the scene where she's, like, sitting on the couch and she's wearing this, like, tighter pink shirt and, like skirt and we have to have a whole side conversation on like her style game in this yes. movie yes but i was like wow she like looks like a real woman she's a woman yeah it was so significant because there's definitely like a lolita effect i think mm-hmm. with asian american women and also asians in asia for sure i feel like we should preface this conversation there's been so much controversy about crazy rich asians mm. and what an asian person means so that that's interesting because um what a lot of the press that's come out after both of these references so crazy rich asians and to all the boys i loved before i've really argued the case that these are supposed to be romantic comedies Mm. these aren't actually supposed to be really addressing much of colorism or um, (laughs) the social cultural environment that we live in and it's a deliberately what an article i just read uh by a buzzfeed news reporter um, we've read all the articles yeah i i I (laughs) hope i've read all the articles um it's asian american escapism Mm. And I really like that term because it puts a name to something that we haven't had before. And I think part of understanding identity is to be able to imagine a world that is different from your current reality. Mm. And that imagination comes with its limitations, of course. But Mm -hmm. what I loved about both of these films was I got to have all these feelings about being Asian that weren't like me feeling guilty or me feeling having to explore those themes in the movie as I'm watching them. It was really like, oh, wow, there's this world where, like, they're Asian and it's normal. Mm -hmm. And there are parts of both films that do get at, you know, they're not living in worlds that are are, um, unaffected by race, but they are living in worlds where it's not the prime angle. So I think Mm -hmm. starting from that baseline, it's like, can we let ourselves have these films? It's interesting, what could be argued is, why are, are these types of films the first and I think it begs the question, like, are these even Asian American films? Mm. I've heard this in regards to, I remember being at the Frameline Film Festival mm-hmm. last What's year. What's the Frameline Film Festival? The Frameline Film Festival is a festival in San Francisco and it showcases queer and LGBT films. Mm-hmm. And I saw this movie called Signature Move. And I remember very clearly, it was at the Castro Theater, one of my favorite places ever. Mm-hmm. And the filmmaker came up and it was so powerful, but she just said, I'm so proud of this film because it's a queer person living their life. Mm-hmm. Like, nobody dies. Mm-hmm. There isn't this big struggle. Mm-hmm. It's just someone living their life. And I think that normalization, yeah. to use your language, of other kinds of people besides cis, hetero, white yeah. is is powerful in itself. I have to bring back one of my great cultural influences in my life, which is Friday Night Lights. 
teenagers that you know that I, da, da, da. I want cue <laughs> explosions in the sky, um, <laughs> your hand and mine, which turns out wasn't even actually the soundtrack. Um, it was a, I think, uniquely composed theme. So anyway, um, and I remember when I watched Friday Night Lights, I was in high school. I was, I grew up in the South. Football was the name of my town, the name of the, the social culture environment I grew up in. And, but what I loved about that show was it was about football, but it wasn't. It, there are no Asian people in this this television series. But, you know, at the time, I, A, didn't realize what Kevin acknowledged that. B, like, I, f- I felt like I could relate to all the characters. I, I remember, you know, another reference point is uh, Barry Jenkins, when he talks about Moonlight, he talks about the power of Moonlight being the power of the lived black experience and the emotions that happen in that experience. And so if we if we kind of come all the way full circle, what if what makes To All the Boys I Loved Before and Crazy Rich Asians powerful and relatable, in a way maybe intentionally more universal, is that they evoke emotion. And the emotion they're evoking as rom-coms is like romance and like high school love and nostalgia. I mean, these are very powerful emotions. I think that's a great point. And so when you set, when you talk about films trying to reach us, mm-hmm. who is the us that you're mm-hmm. that you're thinking of? Well, apparently it's forty percent of us showed up at the box office um, this weekend. Woo! Yeah, thirty four million uh, yeah. was the box office for opening weekend. I think their audience is more than just Asian people, and a lot of that I've gathered from the interviews. That being said, what I think they've they've done is they've been able to turn this narrative about representation into a cultural part of this cultural movement we're in, which is diversifying the media that we see from Hollywood. From film. I say moment, not movement, because I still think we're too early to know whether this is going to be a longstanding movement. Mm. And Oh, right. That's what the director, John M. Chu, yes. said. Yeah, this yes. isn't a moment. This is a movement. Yes. One of the things I'm curious about is, is it important to actually activate far more voices than just the Asian one because the truth of a lot of the Asian experience is association with whiteness. And so if we see that these films are being talked about in national media, does that help to validate us and validate our feelings about, because they can be a broader piece you can talk to with your friends who aren't just Asian. Okay, first that, (laughs) you're specifically talking about the intended Mm -hmm. audience. Mm -hmm. And I would say all of the filmmakers that I love and admire really talk about audience as very, very targeted. Mm-hmm. Like it's a very specific mm-hmm. experience that they're that they're creating, mm-hmm. a specific world that they're shaping with characters that have real identities mm-hmm. that are multifaceted, intersectional. People are in general drawn to those stories, no matter what mm-hmm. they are, if they're a real person. Mm-hmm. So I think it's tough when anyone creates something for a very, very broad audience mm-hmm. because oftentimes that that waters down yeah. a lot of the the color and the character. Yeah. Um, let's talk about a real person. So Lana Condor, who is uh, playing Lara Jean Covey in To All the Boys I Loved Before. Love her name. I know. Lara Jean. Jean. LJ. Lara Jean. Not DJ, LJ. Covey. Love it. <laughs> I think high school movies are, and high school rom-coms specifically are very powerful. It's terrifying and pretty awful for most everyone, right? And Lara Jean, she reminds me of who I was in high school. Uh, albeit much better dressed and with way more confidence. And that, that's something I want to talk about because specifically in the scene where they're drawing the contract. And, and you know, at the time, Noah 
is just like, oh, this, are you crazy? Like, he says all these things that people say to me, and I'm like, oh, shit, am I crazy? And instead, she's like, these are non-negotiable. And she just stands by her value system. And there's something about that that's aspirational, while also, like, ha- you know, she's very relatable in, in the way they, they give her character development through the whole film. But in these specific moments, she also has these qualities of being aspirational. Like, I don't think any of us really like, that articulate or, like, that strong in our value system at that age. Maybe I'm just speaking for me. But there was something that was unrelatable but also aspirational. And I think that is the, the power of a very beloved character is when they're able to unlock both the realness but also the, the aspirational um hmm I found myself um thinking it was because she was Asian American mm. and actually seeing it as a negative portrayal mm. playing into this model minority stereotype oh my god of course an Asian American girl has to have a signed contract to like enter into oh, a dating that, relationship I didn't even notice that and when she she was like you can't kiss me anymore if she were white I think I would have admired it but because mm, she was Asian American I was extra sensitive to when she was being perhaps overly um responsible or rigid wow. or prudish definitely that's super i did not realize that can we talk about the boys and the choice of yes. race yes. so people have been critical of the fact and this is the way jenny han wrote the book but that there are no actual asian asian boy love interests i don't actually think there's even an asian boy on screen there there are were they, in the background? In the, uh, they were extras in the uh, cafeteria scene <laughs> I was looking. Okay, so yeah. there are extras in the cafeteria scene of Asian actors, but otherwise they are they are pretty absent. And I think this was actually a big criticism of Mindy Kaling when she started the mini project oh, because most of her love interests were white men. Yeah. And I remember there being different arguments from her and from others, mm-hmm. one being, if I'm Asian, it does not mean I need to be with an Asian man. Mm-hmm. And I feel like but growing up in a predominantly white place, I was definitely aware of that stereotype same races go together in terms of romantic yes. couples so if there was for example another asian boy anywhere i would reject him because i didn't want to live up to the stereotype wow and then do so, all of those questions go away when you're in love with that person have you seen the movie something new no oh my gosh you should watch it. <laughs> so homework it's just like it's a it's on netflix but it's a black woman and a white guy and so her basically black community and friends are all like, what are you doing with a white guy? Mm-hmm. And including herself, mm-hmm. she's probably her harshest critic. Mm-hmm. And it's all about love over race. Mm-hmm. I remember watching that over and over and over. I and I think Dear White love People it. on Netflix, the, oh, yeah. the TV series also interrogates this when Sam is faced with all this pressure to break up with her white boyfriend because she's an activist for the black community. Those moments where... She is most vulnerable mm-hmm. is when you rush, she really, truly loves him. Mm-hmm. And to all the boys I've loved before, the love was sent, the crush. Even though he says, I love you, I was like, whoa, <laughs> dude. Love yeah. I'm in love with you, Laura Jean. I was like, okay. we're on the like, lacrosse field. Love. Yeah. High love. <laughs> they do make a point of interjecting her own identity. So when they're watching mm-hmm. 16 Candles, she'll be like, mm-hmm. that, that character is racist. She is like teaching him a bit and he's just there to learn but he points out he's actually the first one to say isn't this really racist oh yeah that's true yeah, yeah. that's true gen z <laughs> they're more progressive than us before i forget mm-hmm. i just want to say i could not tell the difference between the two white guys at the beginning <laughs> like i'm not even yeah. saying that i could not 
Maybe that's just because they, I'm not in high school They have the high school anymore. boy hair. It's a hair. And they're like white guys with nice eyes. They wear hoodies and like... I also, on that note, found it really interesting. She was the most Asian-looking character. Her two sisters, mm. definitely much more white-looking. And, and Jenna Parrish, who plays Margot, is half Asian. So I want to go back to the question about your experience as an adoptee, Korean adoptee, and Korean-American. And Thank you. Lana, All the labels. Lana, you know, <laughs> I don't say I'm Chinese-American. I don't think I've ever uttered those words. Why do you think that is? It's a great question. Maybe that's next next that's therapy next, session. That's the next episode. <laughs> for the commercial break. Let's okay. explore the adoptee uh, narrative because I think Lana Condor has been vocal in her interviews about her experience being an adoptee. Can you summarize for me and everyone else those? Because yeah. I actually haven't read them yet. I'm so curious. So La, La, Lana, I, I'm going to like mix up their names because their names oh, yeah. are so Jean close. To, yeah, Lana is a Vietnamese American, but um, her parents are American. They're white, and she grew up with a Asian brother who's her non-biological brother. She expresses in her interviews that uh, she identifies as being Asian American but that being an adoptee is part of her story. And I thought it was interesting because she doesn't have the same experience as uh, someone growing up with an Asian family would. All of the you know, Asian mom and dad problems, the jokes, the experience of being in an immigrant family, but she claims that identity. And I think what she's expressed is a lot of pride in that identity and her socialization of that isn't due to her parents and there's a I think an interrogation and I believe the Teen Vogue article where it's like is there a privilege of her not having these experiences of being <laughs> guilt tripped and um, always never being you know never being enough and always falling short and the pressure that's inter- passed down across generations of immigrants does that give her some degree of freedom? Damn. Did they ask her that? How did they phrase that? Teen Vogue is, is changing its game. <laughs> no, but like how did they... That's I'm... How, yeah, as yeah. an adoptee myself, that's triggering for me to hear. Mm-hmm. So I would... I'm curious to go back and read those exact words. Okay. So here's what she says. Uh, I was born in Vietnam and I was adopted by an Irish lady and a Hungarian man. And then I moved to America. So in a way I grew up in a mixed household because my brother and I are Asian our parents are white. There's a misconception that I can't relate to the quote-unquote Asian-American experience because I didn't grow up with an Asian mom and dad, and that's just not true. I am Asian-American, and so playing a girl who is half Korean, half white, but her white dad tried really hard to connect with her mom's heritage, that's very familiar to me. My parents always wanted me to learn about my culture and try to make me eat Vietnamese food. Teen Vogue. Were they always trying to feed you pho? They would, yeah, of course, of course, because they wanted so hard for me to not forget where I came from, and I appreciate that. And I see Lara Jean's dad do that. So the whole experience is very familiar to me, which further made my experience on that movie more comfortable. Mm-hmm. This is from the Teen Vogue article, Laura, Lana Condor, on why she had to have the role of Lara Jean into all the boys I've loved before and playing an Asian-American lead. That is a long-ass article name. Yeah. So, and I don't know how much of this I want to say, but who can claim an Asian American identity? As we've already talked about, a lot of people even feel left out of the Asian American 
identity within mainstream media because they are Southeast Asian, because they are South Asian. Asian American isn't just for light-skinned East Asians. I think it's also really different having someone... I'm not sure how old Lana is. She's 21. She's 21, so she's not living at home, Mm -hmm. I assume. And lots of the adoptee research, specifically Korean adoptee research, that has been done, the subjects are in college because that's a formative time in your life, one. But two, it's when you kind of get to be your own person away from family. And I think that's when your identity starts to form, especially if you're an adoptee because you are not associated with your white parents. There's probably similar things going on with Asians who have immigrant parents like you get to be your own person it's wrong to think that identity just comes from family Mm, I think that is a main that is a huge part of the Asian American experience Um, so I do not want to discount that and I probably feel like sensitive to that because I haven't had that Um, so it's also triggering when someone expresses that Asian adoptee hasn't uh, had their fair share of struggle let's say Mm. with Asian immigrant parents it's like another layer of not belonging mm. in addition to that Asian-American layer. So it's it's just another interrogation of what being an Asian-American means. Again, asterisks, this is, there's many, many, many different experiences. And there's also so many overlapping experiences with this like quote-unquote motherland moment. I know yeah, that's what the mainstream media has been using right what, now. Yeah, I don't know what that means. Mm-hmm. I guess. So it's assuming that you have immigrant right. parents. Right, right. That's interesting, and and I think there's a way that that fits very much into some of the arguments around the American experience, is that we all have some other motherland. Do you think Um, these films interrogated this idea of home? So I had a very emotional reaction during Crazy Rich Asians. I haven't digested it. I feel like if I see it again, I'm just going to cry again. Yeah. Like, I still am processing it. Yes, there are definitely themes of home, and they, I think Crazy Rich Asians explored it in a very nuanced way and I still appreciated it but I think my tears really came from honestly just and I'm such a visual person from seeing seeing people Mm. like the actual literal Mm -hmm. representation Mm -hmm. which I know especially this past weekend has been a word just a total Mm -hmm. buzzword Mm -hmm. in all of these articles all of these movie reviews um but that that was a serious moment and it's it's hard to articulate it's it's similar to my Uh, South Asian friends who saw The Big Sick. And it's similar to my Latinx friends who saw Coco and were bawling their eyes out. You know, when Michelle Yeoh spoke Cantonese at the opening of of Crazy Rich Asians, I cried because of not only what was happening, but also that I heard my native language in a film and they weren't doing kung fu. And I I think what I loved, and this kind of goes back to the criticism of... of (laughs) Maybe not criticism is not the right word, but the experience of being Asian is that you are cast as an outsider, as a foreigner. And in these films, you Asians were not outsiders or foreigners. They were the primary vision and characters. Our culture-specific behavior, universal and normal. And I think that's maybe what's so impactful about it, them being rom-coms and kind of going back to our original question of like, why did the first... You know, major forays into this cultural moment be romantic comedies beyond the fact that we're living in very grim times and maybe we need a good romantic comedy. But <laughs> it's it's safe bet. <laughs> I would say major props to the producers because I think they did all of this very intentionally to normalize the viewing of our culture in a way that sets the stage for perhaps more 
risky, quote unquote, bets um, on on our narratives. Mm-hmm. And I think lots of people said that the rom-com narrative was really, really successful in specifically Crazy Rich Asians because people understand those beats. Because mm-hmm. that structure is already yeah. familiar, um, you can almost get away with more nuance yes. because you don't have to explain an entire yes, new genre or that. a new structure. I love that. Yes, that's a great point. In interviews I've heard about Searching, which is the John Cho movie that's opening next weekend, but John Cho plays a father who loses his daughter. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's basically the premise. It's kind of an action thriller. It's not about racial identity Mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. It just happens to be an Asian American man and his daughter. Here's my thesis about why Searching John Cho is not getting the same level of momentum and visibility and conversation than... Crazy Rich Asians, and to All the Boys I Loved Before. Both of those films, when you listen to the way the Jenny Han and John Chu talk about the way the film was made, is they were up against the odds. And I think it's very intentional that this was their press strategy. It's all about, for Crazy Rich Asians, monumental. First movie since Joy Luck Club featuring an Asian American cast. And John Cho is like, it's just, it's, this is a grim tale. It's about... a daughter who goes missing and let's just think about how many of those stories are in the news today people of color women going missing not being reported on it's a serious issue that's happening that honestly you probably don't want to think about oh interesting okay and so what people have argued is is a cultural trend around the resurgence of the rom-com is because of the times we live in we are so tired Mm. of feeling negative and Mm. sad and scared and afraid for our families and for our children that we just need an escape and that goes back to this point on asian american escapism and why in in this time right now it is working and i think they i would agree with that argument and i think it's very hard to put searching into that category i don't i mean i think that's an excellent analysis uh and maybe this is just who i hang out with but there is such a such a demand for, like, the staircase, making a murderer. Like, I feel like people are very interested in true crime stories right but now right as now? Well. I mean, the staircase just came out. I don't even know about the staircase. Really? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it was, like, a six-hour Sundance documentary. It's on Netflix. Okay. It's about a murderer. All white guys. Ooh. Okay, I love, I love a good rom-com. I love me a good rom-com. I think that the genre had kind of petered out mm-hmm. because millennial women are demanding more from media. Uh, representation of women in general and not playing this this victim that has to be saved, which is the yeah, a lot the of familiar, 90s rom-coms. The familiar yeah. narrative. I The fourth time I watched To All the Boys I Love Before. I was really, it as good as the first time? I mean, time? every time I watch it, I'm asking a different question. And this the fourth time I was like, is Laura Jean a victim needing to be saved? Is this the traditional rom-com narrative? And it's not mm-hmm. that race doesn't matter because it always is there. But there are some human emotions and love, I believe is one of them, that can transcend the barriers that race can put into any relationship. And maybe these movies are just saying, what if we had more of that? A part of me wants to say, I wish that the pioneering Asian American films mm-hmm. hadn't been rom-coms. Oh, wow. It's, it's a very white narrative. Like, we've seen it play mm-hmm. out before in white mainstream media. So it feels less like ours. Oh. And I'm not sure if it's fair to ask 
for Asian American representation only when we recreated an entire genre and made it our own. But I feel like that's kind of what Black Panther did. Mm. It was like Afrofuturism, we're doing this, we're tackling race, we're tackling colonialism, we're wearing sweet outfits, whatever. It actually tackled race head on. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to add a point there. Black Panther comes at a certain point in the rise of black culture and a much later point. In Eight Years in Power, Ta-Nehisi Coates argues that the rise of black intellectualism, black culture, came with the election of Obama in 2008. Mm-hmm. Black Panther came out in 2017. It had nine years to cultivate a voice. A number of films, books, for the Asian experience, I don't think were anywhere close to that. But our voice and our consolidation as a culture is still so young and so new and that's what's made these films so powerful it's like it's never happened before at least in our generation's lifetime Troila Club was 20-25 years ago I don't know that we had the same opportunity to create something like Black Panther at this point in time if you even think back to All American Girl which is the first all Asian Mm -hmm. American sitcom that was the one Amidst the Cosby Show, living in Living Color, um, Fresh Prince. Yeah, like, and that's a big conversation. So we're starting point. from yeah. way, way below. Yeah, is that the '90s uh, black sitcom era actually set the stage for writers and editors, producers? These are the gatekeepers to actually have started to be in positions of influence and power. And it's I love that you brought up Tanahasi Coates and the Obama presidency because I think. <laughs> Even though, like, we joke about pop culture, like, you and I are like, oh my gosh, we talk about pop culture. I think it's so, so like, it ties together what's happening in our world globally, like, in the geopolitical sphere. So the 90s era of black television came about, Jeff Chang has Mm -hmm, a book, has mm -hmm, so much writing on this, so I want to get it, sorry, Jeff, Um, but I believe that came about right after Rodney King. So it was, like, this rise of black media in response to this horrific tragedy that affected black community in the 90s it's interesting how media is both pioneering certain Mm -hmm. movements Mm -hmm. and moments but also in response there were less as you said so rightly producers in the room during in the 90s because a lot of asians weren't even in creative spaces yes so we weren't even in those professions not even in school yep Still, our generation, so like 80s, 90s kids, were still told like the doctor, lawyer, engineer yep. thing. And, and a big part of that goes back to how early our immigrant experience is. That was in just after World War II. First, we were even allowed into the country. And then seen as more than just restaurant owners and janitors. There's generations of survival mentality where you do need to get a white collar job because that's going to make you better off than your parents and your grandparents Mm -hmm. and you just said generations but that's one generation Mm -hmm. like if Mm -hmm. we're thinking about the 60s yeah you're right that's that's one that but that puts the pressure on our generation to actually be the first to start to do this work on a national scale that can change culture and that's i think what makes it so awesome to be asian right now is we can Mm. change culture fundamentally and I think more of us actually are starting to see that because we have now two films to talk about, which is better yes. than last year. And hopefully next year we'll have more and more and more. But because I think we forget about that when we think it's not just Joy Law Club. That's the last historical mm-hmm. reference point. It's that was a generation ago. 
I just love that you said it's awesome to be Asian right now. That like makes me feel good. That kind of gives me goosebumps. This weekend has actually been incredibly overwhelming. And I don't know if you felt this, but there's been so much Asian American media and yes. so much buzz. Yes. I felt um, I felt panicky. Yes. Because I'm used yes. to. Yes. Yes. Thank you for naming that feeling. <laughs> because, but it was exciting panicky because I'm used yeah. to like focusing on one Asian American mm-hmm. piece of media. And then talking like, about okay, the week. Yes. Yeah. Like not even the week because I'm used to like, oh, this one album came out mm-hmm. or this one movie mm-hmm. came out or this one book, mm-hmm. but we had a handful of yeah, things definitely. just recently definitely. come out. And there was I, like, so much media. So much media. And I felt like I couldn't keep up for the first time. So it was kind of a beautiful yeah, feeling. I, I love that you said that. I'm so glad you remember this point because I just couldn't really understand the feeling. I was like, wait, like this is really positive. Like I should be excited about this, but I feel panicked. So panicked. And then another part of me, I think this is where the deeper panic was. I don't know what I want to say. And I felt this pressure like, oh, we have a voice. Now I need to say something. Everyone wants a voice. And it's hard to know what your voice is in those moments, right? And I'm so Mm -hmm. glad we did this because Mm -hmm. I felt like it was such a safe and yet really thoughtful time to digest, which I hadn't had up to this moment. One point that you brought up previously is that we're such great connectors Mm. and synthesizers. So honestly, I think that's a real that's a real emotion that you name this real talk what is my voice mm-hmm. what do I want to add to this already mm-hmm. you know the chorus of voices mm-hmm. um, and my intuition was I wanted to create a spreadsheet of all of the reviews of Crazy Rich Asians and To All the Boys I've Loved Before in terms of like most critical to least <gasps> I really wanted that reference. I think it's important that our community, um, including ourselves, yeah. just understands both end of the, ends of the yes, spectrum. Because I, I think that. the criticisms are just as important as the, the praise it's gotten and the I celebration. Yeah. Can I request that like Yeji mm-hmm. be the soundtrack for this? Uh- <laughs> yeah. Yes! <laughs> and that wraps up episode two! <laughs>